Welcome to Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. And when cancer strikes a family, it can be devastating news. Um, but what many people may not realize is that the mortality rates of cancer um, are declining. Uh, I've asked Dr. Travis Gales to speak with us here on Montgomery Talks. Um, Dr. Gales is the Montgomery County Health Officer. Um, Welcome, Dr. Gales. Thank you. Good morning. Um, this isn't necessarily new news. I, it's been declining for 10 years. Yeah. So part of, of what we're, I mean, we, we celebrate the fact that the, the mortality rates are declining. And uh, that is across the board. Uh, we do know that there's still some persistent disparities and when you compare different demographic groups, and there's a little bit of geographic disparity across the county. But overall, um, cancer mortality is improving also across different cancer types. We feel strongly that in large part that is due to improved screening rates um, and making sure that folks not only are getting screened, but are getting screened closer to their age appropriate time. Um, and so one, we are being more proactive or the community is being more proactive about getting those screenings. And if cancer cases are picked up, they're being picked up at earlier stages, which allow for uh, pretty much more success uh, through treatment if they're caught, uh, if the cancers are caught at earlier stages. Um, so as you said, uh, the emphasis has been on screening. We devote a lot of resources towards finding new cancer cures. Is really the answer just screening at the right time? No. So clarify everything. So there has been a large emphasis placed on screening, but certainly uh, it goes hand in hand with improved treatment modalities. Um, again, being able to detect cancers earlier, get people into treatment plans earlier, and then allowing for, so it's twofold. So it's not only having better cancer treatment modalities through research, which is definitely needed and continued, uh, but it's also making sure people have access to care so that they can access those up-to-date um, modern treatment techniques uh, that, that are put into place. Um, and over the last decade, we've seen significant improvements in the medications, um, significant improvements in the surgical techniques in terms of how to intervene and address tumors depending upon the sites where they are. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, you know, the county as a whole has been working very hard through county programs, for example, Montgomery Cares, which links individuals who are not eligible for other forms of insurance and linking them to primary care coverage, thereby um, increasing the likelihood that they have access to some type of specialty care um, coverage in the event that they are found to have cancer, but also through other programs such as the Affordable Care Act, which has increased the um, level of resources that individuals have at their at their disposal in terms of, of insurance coverage and access to care. So access to care is, is one of the reasons why there are still disparities. What specifically can, can, can be done? Does that have to fall to the county to, to increase access? Or can we expect our hospitals to do more or doctors to do more? I think it's a multi-pronged effort. Um, and we already have strong efforts in the county by all of the players that you've mentioned. So the work through Health and Human Services, um, through programs such as Montgomery Cares, 
um, the cancer control screening program that is in place um, that um, helps increase access to breast and cervical cancer programs for women, um, and also the colorectal screening program. And those programs are funded through the state and the national the federal level, uh, but they are executed on the county level. And so, um, and then, you know, you have lots of other efforts that we are are looking at. You know, the hospitals have great programs that they provide in terms of coverage for their patients, as well as increasing their partnerships with community organizations to raise awareness about needing to get screened, increasing access for folks to come and get screened, and then helping to remove those barriers to treatment that folks have after screening and having a positive result to ultimately getting the treatment that they need to have a successful outcome. And I think there's another approach that we have have put into place from the health and human services and public health perspective um, as it relates to how we look at what causes cancer and what drives those disparities. So we spend a good amount of time building um, networks and doing analysis to understand what those social determinants, and that's a buzzword nowadays, um, the social determinants of health that are driving those outcomes. So looking at the how one's access to good nutritious food, access to transportation, access to educational employment opportunities, how all of those factors may predispose or increase an individual's risk of developing cancer, but even after their diagnosis, how do those factors influence their ability to access treatment, get the treatment they need, and have a successful outcome, not only in the short term, but also over the space of five to 10 years after their initial cancer diagnosis. So we've been working hard um, to form those partnerships and further those pre-existing partnerships with other agencies that address those other factors um, so that we can, can we can support policies that are in place already or look at how we can design other policies and programs that will help alleviate those burdens and barriers that might influence an individual's success. So that's it. You said there are geographic differences on mm -hmm. cancer rates in the county. Where is it seen most and where is it seen least? Well, I think it depends on the cancer type. Um, and I don't I don't want to throw out specifics to get to mm -hmm. the wrong numbers, but I would reference the uh, 2018 annual status of health report for the county that highlights um, all of the different cancer sites and shows both from a geographic perspective. And it's also broken down by race, age, and gender um, to show the impact of different cancers on community um, and some of the other measures that we look at. So we're, we're not only looking at just incidents, we're looking at access to initial treatment, but then we also look at five and 10 year survival rates afterwards. And so, for example, one of the ones that um, we have, have spent a good amount of time looking at and trying to wrap our hands around is, for example, in our, our Montgomery Cares population, we initially saw that black women in the program were having higher five-year mortality rates than their counterparts and initially thought, well, maybe that's because they're not getting screened enough. And well, actually, they were getting screened more frequently, um, closer, closer to the age-appropriate time, but over time, we're having um, higher mortality rates at the five-year marker. And so one of the things that we've been trying to look at and understand is, so if folks are getting screened earlier, 
and closer to on time, why are they having having higher rates? And so we hypothesize that that may be due to access to, to the needed treatments or there being a, a greater delay from that screen, initial screening to when folks were able to access treatment and care. And so those are the kinds of questions that we're asking and taking a deeper dive within the data, not just simply saying, here's the incidents, but you are welcome to look at that, that report that highlights those, those differences across the county. Um, but we've, we've tried to, again, spend some time to tease out and figure out what the root causes are that are driving those differences so that we can design policies that really get to the heart of, of, of those root causes. Mm-hmm. I believe I read at one point that Maryland was considered a high cancer state. Is that still considered true? I think, uh, again, uh, it, it depends on the cancer site. Uh, we do have uh, a higher burden of disease in comparison to some of the other jurisdictions. Um, but again, you know, overall, the trends are trending down, mm-hmm. um, which does create a little bit of a, a challenge from uh, when there are limited resources. So if numbers are getting better, we're going to say, hey, things are fixed. We, you right. know, there may be some cuts to programs, which we have seen. And so there have been some cuts to the screening programs that I mentioned earlier earlier. And so from a policy perspective, we're having to be a little bit creative about how we do that. And mm-hmm. in terms of increasing our partnerships, you referenced hospitals and other agencies within the county. Um, and so we're having to be creative about how we uh, increase the number of folks who have access to screening and access to treatment while operating in a space of, of dwindling um, outside funding to support those programs. So Let's say you you're facing a cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. individually. What do you think that what should happen next? What should a person do? Well, I think uh, the biggest thing is making sure that uh, the individual has had the opportunity to have good, frank, um, thorough conversations with their healthcare provider. So making sure that the individual is tapped into the resources with a good primary care provider to provide, in some ways, a medical home to coordinate their care. Uh, Because when you receive a diagnosis such as cancer, there are lots of questions, there are lots of unknowns. There's lots of different um, treatment programs and plans out there. If you Google it, you can find thousands of different techniques across the board. Not all of them are evidence-based. And so I think the most important thing is making sure that an individual has access to a provider to help them navigate that process. Um, And that that provider can also help link them to uh, the second dependents, um, link them to experts. Uh, We are very fortunate in the area that we have is we have great hospitals period within the county. But then we also have a good network of large academic centers in the area from the, the academic centers um, and health centers in the D.C. area to those in, you know, in Baltimore as well that house a lot of experts in the field. Um, that also increase, and in you know, we have the biggest one here, we have National Institutes of Health. So lots of experts locally um, who are tapped into a lot of different resources um, and can help provide an expanded network of potential treatment plans, access to different experts to answer questions. Um, and so from a medical standpoint, being tapped into a good primary care provider to help navigate, to be linked to those subspecialty services. And conversely, I think what's, what's important, and as a, a pediatrician, um, a medical provider myself in my past life, um, 
I think what also helps individuals be successful in treatment is making sure that they have a support network in place, uh, whether that's through their inherited family or chosen family um, or their community network to help um, deal with the, the diagnosis. Um, so from the perspective of helping cope with the diagnosis, um, also being linked and tied into the social support services that we talked about before. So access to transportation to and from doctor's appointments, um, access to good food resources and nutrition. We know that eating healthily and having access to nutritious foods is something that helps an individual who's um, undergoing cancer treatment. And so I think those are probably the constellation of, of, of support services needed in place, most importantly at the beginning, um, to help the individual navigate that process and help them cope with their diagnosis. You mentioned support networks. Is there anything else that, um, the, say, the loved one of somebody who's been uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer can do that they all feel that sense of helplessness that, mm-hmm. you know, the, that a family member or friend is going through something that, you know, they probably feel like, gee, I wish I could bear it for them? Well, I think with any diagnosis, um, part of it is being present and being supportive of the individual um, to help, again, help them cope with that and deal with it on a daily basis and help navigate that process. I think one of the the best things a a support person can do for that individual is to make sure that they um, get as much information as they can to be educated about the process that the the other individual is going through. Um, And I think helping, you know, I even encourage my family, it's asking questions is important. Um, Asking questions to get more information, to understand diagnosis, to understand treatment options, um, to understand the side effects, I think is a powerful tool because, again, it helps make sure that the individual who has a diagnosis is informed and the other individual is as well. Sometimes asking questions, particularly to healthcare professionals, can be very daunting. Not not to pick on your profession, but I know a lot of doctors who are, they just don't want to hear questions or they they, they portray that they don't want to hear questions because they think they've made the decision. And they've I'm sure they've they've pondered the issues that with this particular patient, but then the family comes in and, and starts rattling off, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? What is there anything that you can tell? a patient or a family, what they would should know about um, asking questions? I think the most important thing that they should know is that it's their right to do so. So um, whether the provider has a, an energy that conveys, I'm not interested in asking questions or listening to questions or not, it's the patient's right to do so. Um, and, you know, even though it can be daunting, it's important to do that. It's empowering to do that. Um, I think that in many ways that the notion that a lot of, you know, physicians don't, aren't open to questions is a little bit of a generalization. Um, although it is, yeah, although yeah, it I'm is, not trying is to present, make, yeah. I'm not trying to oh, say sure, that all sure. doctors are like sure. that. Um, sure. I mean, I've encountered physicians who are, or healthcare providers, not just doctors, but across the board who are reticent to answering questions in my own. Oh, no. Um, but reminding the patient that you're right to do so. And it's your time and space to do that because it's important to understand. Um, you know, you shouldn't feel you shouldn't have to feel that to get your aunt, your questions answered. You go to the, doc, the healthcare provider 
and wait to get home to Google it or check Facebook or social media to answer your questions because the quality and depth of the information is is variable and it's it's uncertain. Um, but again, going back to the original point is it's your right to do so. Um, and that is the expectation of, of that is the continuum of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that also gets back to how we're trained as healthcare providers um, in terms of making sure that the information that we provide to individuals is it's comprehensive, it's scientific and it's clinical, but it's delivered in a way that folks understand. Um, and I've even in my own personal experience as a clinician, most often the thing that we think is most important and think that you as the patient should be focusing on is 10th or 20th in the list of things going through my head as the patient. And so it pays to have deeper conversations to understand what those things are that the patient is worried about and then figuring out how to integrate that into the larger message. Um, and I, you know, I'll throw out one example is you know, we often say, you know, you're taking your medication. And for someone, you know, if the medication requires to take it with food, well, if you you have a patient who doesn't have access to food or, you know, that's a big issue for them, they may not be taking the medication. So from the provider's perspective, I'm upset that, you know, I, can't, I don't understand. I told you to take the medication. You know you're supposed to take it multiple times a day and, you know, that's going to get you better. And so from my perspective, I'm thinking, well, why aren't you doing that? And from the patient's perspective, it's I'm hungry. I need food. It's not that I don't want to take the medication, but you told me I need to take it with food and I don't have food. So how do I do that? And so it's a missed opportunity to say, well, what's actually driving your lack of compliance, if you will, is food insecurity. So let me help you address that. And then by addressing that, that may increase your compliance with the medication regimen that that I prescribe. So enhanced communication um, and taking a little bit of extra time to, to have those those talks. And our our healthcare providers, our doctors train to be able to handle food insecurity when they're probably in, in, in their training for whatever their specialty is. Well, it's increasing. Um, certainly, you know, maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't something, you know, on the radar or it's not that it's not on the radar, but it's something that typically you say, okay, well, I'll assign you to a case manager who can help you navigate those right. things. But the research, as you mentioned before, so the scientific research has improved significantly. So we're doing all sorts of amazing clinical things that we wouldn't have even thought about 10 years ago, let alone a couple of years ago. Um, But the research has also increased, again, on the impact of those social determinants of health and how they influence an individual's health outcome. And so now that we have an increasing and growing understanding of how those factors influence health, it's being integrated more into the delivery of care. And so when I walk into the room in the patient encounter, yes, I'm doing your physical exam and I'm talking about these more clinical, physical, somatic things, but I'm also thinking about how those other factors influence health and making sure I get that information. Um, Is there a limit to the number of second opinions somebody should get? Or or, or do you just keep going and going and going until you've decided that you've reached some some kind of consensus? Well, I think it's most important to get right information as opposed to multiple opinions because everyone has an opinion. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, it goes back to the quality of the source of information. 
Um, I, I think that, again, it's important to ask questions and get as much information as possible. Um, much like the old adage, quality versus quantity, right. I would say it's the same situation where it's the quality and depth of information um, more so than having 50 different opinions uh, within a situation. So, again, I, th- I think that goes back to the idea of having access to a trusted healthcare professional that an individual has a relationship with that they feel that they can trust to ask those questions and also trust that individual's um, level of expertise and ability to refer them to someone else with the same level of expertise and knowledge. Suppose two doctors disagree, though. I mean, how do you how do you referee between a doctor who says we want to go with this treatment and another doctor says, no, that treatment's no good. I want you to go with a different treatment. Well, again, it's it's again getting access to quality information. So you know when you every situation is different, mm-hmm. um, and I don't you know don't want to throw out global things and say, well, Doctor Gales told me I should do this, um, but I think it's important to, um, and this is why I think it's important to have a for the non clinical things the support system in place as well for an individual, so they're not having these conversations by themselves. Um, again, to help an individual navigate through the process. And, you know, if there is a situation where folks disagree, you know, there may be room for a third or fourth opinion to be able to step in um, and help the, the patient understand what will be best for them. Um, I think at the end of the day, success is making sure that the individual has all, as much information as possible, as much comprehensive, thorough, right information as possible so that the individual can make an informed choice how they'd like to proceed. Um, and that's the most important thing in, in terms of being able to empower the patient to make the choice that's right for them um, and in order for them to be successful. I'm sure you don't want to answer this question as directly as I wish you would, but somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, say, in Montgomery County. Uh, should they feel confident that the hospitals in the uh, in the county can mm-hmm. can treat them, or are there, I mean, barring something unusual that only a specialty hospital could handle, mm-hmm. do they feel? Do you feel comfortable that they could get treatment here in the county? Yes. Um, I th- again, I think that every diagnosis is different, mm-hmm. um, but what's great about the hospitals and health systems within the county. Um, having worked with them in a number of different areas and number of projects is the level of collaboration um, and the expansive network of specialists and healthcare providers within their network to provide those services. Um, so I think that, you know, we're not just talking about the the bricks and mortar that are physically here, but an individual would have access to all of the different support services within uh, the healthcare provider network. And what's also very encouraging going back to the notion of collaboration is that all of the health systems within the county have a great and thorough understanding and value the impact um, of all those different other components that influence an individual's care. So, yes, they provide great clinical scientific-based care, but they also have a great network of other resources that help an individual navigate those social support services that we talked about earlier that can influence and help an individual be more successful in their outcome. And um, you mentioned earlier NIH. How, How easy is it or how hard is it to crack into um, what's available at NIH? Mm-hmm. Is it something that is just only allowed for just a handful of people with particular diseases, or is it something that virtually anybody can mm-hmm. take advantage of? 
Again, I think in large part it's due to um, the particular diagnosis. Um, they have so many, just such a vast network of experts um, and, and re- different research protocols and studies going on. So I think it depends on the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's one of the advantages of being tapped into a network of great healthcare providers across the county that have those relationships built that would help navigate um getting an individual into those trials if needed based upon the particular diagnosis as well as the particular um, treatment regimen, initial treatment regimen for uh, the diagnosis as well as any particular failures or outcomes that may have been experienced by the initial treatment plan. And as we always hear that there are new drugs being Mm -hmm. tested and um, it, it avails upon families to do whatever they can to find out what is available. Sure. And I think it's one of the things that we have been working on in the public health world locally is reminding ourselves that we, you know, when we hear about NIH or FDA or USDA, all of these places, we don't have to look across the country to see them. They're in our backyard. And so we have been working to try to learn more about what they're doing locally, even though it's a national and international entity, um, to try to form partnerships um, and increase access locally. And so, yeah, certainly, you know, from the clinical perspective down the line, think about trying to build relationships and partnerships to get access to those protocols. But also from a prevention perspective, you know, when we've got agencies and organizations here doing prevention work, why not partner with NIH and some of their institutes to do that, again, since they're in our backyard and locally. So we've been working hard to to form those relationships and uh, make sure that we leverage, I hate using the word take advantage when talking about people's health, but leverage the proximity of those resources to help increase our, our footprint in the community. Well, thank you, Dr. Gales. I um, I really appreciated this. Is there anything else that somebody should know about cancer that we haven't discussed? Well, I think um, the big thing is is thinking through as we evolve. You know, we spend a good amount of time talking about the evolution of treatment. As we find out more information about what things may predispose an individual to cancer, I think it's making sure that people are aware of those risk factors um, and think about how they can mitigate those risk factors should they be, you know, and fall risk of that. You know, for example, one of the historic ones is we know cancer, smoking has been linked to cancer. So making sure that individuals are aware of the level of risk of certain behaviors, again, so that they can make informed decisions. And I think, again, going back to the point, to hammer home the point of the impact of social determinants on those predisposing an individual's risk for developing a condition, as well as continuing to understand how those factors influence an individual's successful outcome through the treatment process. Okay. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Um, This has been Montgomery Talks. Our engineer today has been Carolyn Raskowskis. Please join us next time.